This is the Talk Theater in Chicago interview podcast for the week of April 5th. I'm your host this week, Ann Nicholson-Weber, and I'm joined today by Charlie Newell, Artistic Director at Court Theater, and Drew Durr, who is the dramaturg um, at Court and worked on the production we're going to be talking about, which is Tony Kushner's adaptation of Pierre Cornet's The Illusion. And uh, maybe we could start uh, by talking about a rather unusual process um, that happened before this production went up on its feet. Um, and maybe, Charlie, you could just outline what that was. Certainly. Um, one of the extraordinary opportunities that this production presented to court and, and to the artists involved is that here at the University of Chicago, uh, we have one of the leading uh, experts in Cornet in the person of Larry Norman, the deputy provost for the arts. Uh, Larry and I, in thinking about uh, might we do Cornet, might we do Kushner's adaptation of Cornet, Larry then also suggested, well, hey, Charlie, why don't I teach a class in Cornet and you come and be a guest lecturer and let's bring Drew Durr, our resident dramaturg, who's with us today and for this podcast, uh, to be part of that class as well. And we'll list it in the Romance Languages and the Theater and Performance Studies and cross-list it all over the university. And so we put together this unique class uh, that was all about Cornet, not only the background, but some of the, uh, his own uh, adaptations of classic texts that he had done uh, with other reference to other materials in this sort of theater of illusion, uh, the theater of theater, if you will. Uh, and then the second half of the class was really uh, uh, exclusively focused on Tony Kushner's free adaptation of Cornet's original play and Court Theater's production. So we had uh, actors in the in the classroom. We had scholars in the rehearsal room. We had students uh, observing and participating in, in incredible ways in the production, all of which uh, made not only the art better and the scholarship better, but also really generated a wonderful sense that this is the kind of activity that a center for classic theater, which is our ambition here at Court Theater, that a center should be doing. Mm-hmm. So in a in essence, you had not just Drew as the dramaturg, but a whole classroom of students and this very renowned scholar. It, it was it was unbelievable. I mean, we had you know graduate students, undergraduate students, faculty members. Uh, on our website right now, you can find all kinds of articles, not just sort of the standard dramaturgical background, but wonderful articles from the students, from faculty, from Larry Norman, from Drew, etc. That gives you a, a range of uh, uh, things to think about and read about in in preparation or after the fact of mm-hmm. seeing the production. Mm-hmm. That I think is a very rare opportunity. So, Drew, um, I think that not many people have a very clear sense of what the dramaturg does. And I know that in this uh, production, probably your role was a bit different. But maybe just for background, before we go any further, you could sketch in your usual role in a production and then how it was adjusted to um, build on this process that Charlie just described. Well, I would say for any production, there is no usual role for a dramaturg. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a general sense, I'm here to provide literary and historical context for whatever play we are producing. Uh, But from production to production, uh, the need for a dramaturg very much varies and the role of the dramaturg varies. Mm -hmm. And for this production, I think that I did fulfill a need of, uh, of concentrated study of the relationship between Cornet's original text and Kushner's adaptation. Mm -hmm. And of course, as Charlie mentioned, we had upwards of 30 
undergraduate, graduate students, and faculty members on a weekly basis uh, thinking with us and talking with us about those two texts. Mm-hmm. Before we go further in, in comparing the two texts, which is one of the things I'm most interested in, um, just to get at the core of what a dramaturg does, who do you consider to be your consumer? Who are you helping? Uh, unquestionably, the director. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, in a perfect world, I think I would try as, as best as possible not to interact with the actors because that is the director's job to mm-hmm. communicate with the actors. My job is to really help the director in his or her thinking about the work and to provide them with as much information and thinking and critique as possible for them to be making the most informed decisions. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have this interesting situation, which would be true, I suppose, of, of any modern apt- adaptation of a older script that you essentially have two plays on the table. You have Corneille's original script written in what? Uh, 1636. 1636. And then Tony Kushner's adaptation written in the late 80s. Is that right? Uh, Yes. 1988. So um, what I'm interested, I think, in talking about next is how the well, let's talk about that process of those. How many how many students were there in the in the class in the end? Around twenty five mm-hmm. students, and then we had about and then we had Larry and Charlie, and we had a few other professors who were sort of uh, rotating guests in the class. Fred Armas, who talked to us about Calderon and Life is a Dream. Uh, David mm-hmm. Ray, who talked to us about his new translation of Pierre Corneille's Oedipus. Mm-hmm. Um, and David Bevington, who is a trustee and a good friend of Court Theatre, who talked to us about Shakespeare's The Tempest, which, mm-hmm. of course, is a work that bears a lot of similarities to Corneille's illusion. Although not one, as I understand it, that Corneille probably had read. Is that correct? I think that's the the leading opinion. Mm-hmm. There were productions mm-hmm. of The Tempest that were traveling in France, but we, there is no real evidence to suggest that Corneille saw Shakespeare's The Tempest and and wrote his play inspired by that. So it's an interesting case of two authors focusing on some similar themes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, let's talk about what you learned. Um, and Charlie, go go to you. What you learned about Kushner's script by studying Corneille and what you learned out of that process of having 25 or 30 other people besides Drew thinking about these two texts? Well, um, I guess to to start, I would just say that uh, the sophistication of the thinking and the comfort and familiarity with that that period of uh, French Baroque history and, and Corneille's life and times and culture, I mean, those are often the things that one most seeks from the dramaturgical work to help inform a production so that it will have, if not literal, but the spirit, the energy, the charge uh, of the of the world that it, where the original idea came from. But here we had people who've been spending their academic careers thinking about those worlds, mm-hmm. living in their imagination in those worlds. So the quality of the conversation just for me was extraordinary because often, frankly, uh, you – in even in some of the best dramaturgy, a lot of this has to do with just the resource of time. You know, you get a kind of a a general good solid sense. You build a production based on that. But this was this was a much more sophisticated, subtle, nuanced mm-hmm. uh, um, perception. And so I would constantly say things, you know, like, "Well, doesn't that mean?" And then someone someone would say, "No, Charlie, that's a ridiculous idea. That it's not at all the way it was. Here's the way it really was." Mm-hmm. Um, and and so constantly being able as the director to bounce ideas 
ideas off of this group as we began to think about everything. I mean, the most literal from costume design and scenic design to just behavior, uh, you know, uh, social relations, sexual mores, religious, uh, you know, doctrine, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, the list goes on. Um, so that really informed the world overall. The more specific issue about, okay, here's Cornet's play and then here's Kushner's adaptation. Of course, I – and imagine this. Here I get to be a guest lecturer in a French uh, Cornet class. I, I don't understand French. I read very little. And so what do I know of Cornet's play is an English translation mm-hmm. uh, other than Kushner's, right. which is clearly already once removed from the Cornet text itself. So – um, it was a wonderful opportunity again for me to learn from people who read, understand, speak French and the, some of the syntax. And I don't mean just the rhyming and the Alexandrian verse, et cetera, but I mean really the kind of quality of the word choice mm-hmm. that as a French native or French speaker, you would understand that is not represented in any English translation. Right. So then how did Tony in his free adaptation – he he was best we understand from him. He, he was working himself from a literal English translation of the original Cornet. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 then freely adapted it. And when he says freely, there, you cannot think too expansively about how free he was with the adaptation. And maybe we can get into mm-hmm. some of the more of the details about that. But. Um, uh, I remember distinctly at one moment in the in the I say rehearsal, but it was also the classroom because we had actors in the classroom with the uh, with the scholars and the students, uh, and we were rehearsing a scene, and I was stuck on a particular uh, idea or phrase, and it was fantastic because we were able to go back and someone I think it was Larry Norman, our prof- the professor, and also one of the students made specific reference to the word choice in the French mm. and how that what that would mean to Cornet's audience that he made that he made that word choice mm-hmm. uh, that I would have never known it, right. it, because I didn't read French. So right, right, uh, right. that just is a very maybe particular but actually quite Im- critical nuanced uh, information that uh, mm-hmm. was, has deeply informed the entire production. Well, here's a kind of fundamental question: When you do, uh, as you said numerous times, a very free adaptation. Um, how much does it matter about the source? I mean, Tony Kushner wrote his own play. What would? Why can't you just do that and forget about Cornet? Well, why not? Indeed, and 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 I again, being as as ignorant about the original French as I was, thought you know had read an English translation, a more faithful English translation, and thought, wow, Tony's done some cool stuff. But what I learned from the class and from Drew and from Larry was that in fact Tony. Uh, needless to say, had done his homework, (laughs) knew the world, and Uh that even though one couldn't see the more obvious straight literation of it or or transfer of it, the spirit that is contained in his adaptation is deeply embedded into the spirit of the French French Baroque uh, world and text of Cornet's life Mm -hmm. uh, in ways that, again, I never would have known unless I had been able to tap into this much more sophisticated uh, resource that we had available. Can you give either of you an example of something that seemed really important to you that you learned from studying the Cornet and studying the original, the world of the original play that informed this production that you wouldn't have done if this process hadn't happened? A way that this this production is different because of that process? Mm -hmm. I think it's hard to point to any one moment in the play that is influenced by this process that we went through. But I, I can't emphasize enough how much 
um, our thinking about the play was strengthened having these scholarly partnerships mm-hmm. uh, with which to to really meditate about the text on a weekly basis. Um, and I think that they just provided us uh, this whole resource that we don't usually get on on every production. Mm-hmm. And I think it it genuinely uh, made us make better decisions about the play. And not all of it was, uh, you know, was about using something from the Baroque period and and uh, forcing it on Kushner's text. But we got to really understand what Kushner was doing with the original text. And we just had a better understanding of how these plays worked internally. Mm-hmm, right. Just yeah. kind of percolated longer. You know, that occurs to me, I may have a specific example that might mm-hmm. be useful, particularly for, for those of you who've had a chance to see the production. I remember the first time when Larry Norman came to watch a run through and there's a scene very early on between the, the, the young lovers in which he is outside of her garden wall and his wooing her from outside. And because for whatever this is a directorial choice not a uh, not a Kushner adaptation choice um we had in playing around with it in the rehearsal room decided even though he is outside the wall they can't literally be seeing or touching each other he goes on this beautiful reverie uh fantasy really uh uh that um we thought well how can we in a theatrical way in a heightened a, a fantastical way can we represent that that piece of the text so uh in a completely illogical no 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 sense or rationale at all about it but purely out of an intuitive sense we created this little kind of pas de deux this little dance between the two lovers where they are holding and embracing and 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 that their eyes are closed and he's reciting this beautiful poetry and i thought oh gosh when larry norman comes to see it he's going to think oh gosh charlie what have you done to cornet mm-hmm. they would never be together and and he was like oh that's fantastic that's definitely in the spirit of cornet the kind of fantasy the mm-hmm. kind of anything is possible the kind of use of heightened poetic language that is then physicalized in a very specific way. Mm-hmm. So that's a specific example of we we thought that was a good idea in rehearsal, but then getting the affirmation and the and not only the affirmation but the thrill and the excitement from a Cornet expert that is that we were following the spirit of Cornet. Mm-hmm. I felt as a director, I was in just a very small way starting to make some kinds of choices as Tony had made in his free adaptation mm-hmm. that was fueled by the spirit of of the original author. Well, let's talk um, as a bit specifically about the differences between the Cornet and the Kushner. Mm-hmm. And so, Drew, maybe can you, in broad strokes, uh, try to describe what the biggest changes were that Kushner made and how Cornet would play versus how the Kushner plays. Yes, and I'll try and do that uh, as much as possible without giving away uh, mm-hmm. any of the <laughs> ending of the play. The most obvious change that that we discovered was that there is a whole section of the play in Kushner's text that is not in Cornet's original text, mm. and it is because Kushner borrowed from a different source than the Cornet. In fact, it is a Spanish Golden Age novel in dialogue form called La Celestina uh, by an author named de Rojas, uh, all about the romance of two lovers named Callisto and Melibea. And he sort of took those character names and took their scenario and wrote a whole new scene around this lover's courtship Hmm. and implanted it 
in his adaptation amidst all the other Cornelian scenes. So that was an innovation uh, that Kushner's adaptation brought to the Corneille. Another... Let me enter before you go further. What problem was Kushner trying to solve with that? Or if it wasn't a problem, what was he... Why was that important to him? Why did he do that? Well, I think that he was looking for a a beat or a, a moment for the character's development that was not in the original Cornet. Mm-hmm. In the play, he depicts these four characters uh, going from very youthful romance into sort of a, a middle age of, of learning the world and uh, having to meet uh, realistic facts about the nature of love and money and ending in sort of a dystopian uh, conclusion about uh, their relationships and about their romantic entanglements. And I think he needed that early stage when they're young and they're vibrant and they're completely naive and have no idea what they're getting themselves into, Mm -hmm. which is not provided in the Cornet. That's interesting. Okay, so another you were going to give, I think, another example of important ways that Kushner changed the Cornet? I think that one key way he changed it was at the end of Cornet's play, without saying too much, there's a long speech that the magician Alcandra gives about theater and how noble the art of theater is and how uh, what an ideal profession is it is for anyone to enter into. And the ending of the Kushner also has a stated conclusion about the art of theater, but it's a much more ambivalent conclusion Mm -hmm. that Cornet reaches. Mm -hmm. And I think that just shows the difference in the times in which these two authors are writing. Cornet is writing in 1636 when drama is becoming the dominant art form in France. And of course, Kushner is writing at the end of the 20th century when theater is no longer the dominant art form mm-hmm. in the English-speaking world. Mm-hmm. Although you could imagine that that would go the other way, that if you didn't have to defend theater at a time when it was already a big deal and you would want to defend it at a time mm-hmm. when it's losing its mm-hmm. status. So in, mm-hmm. in a way, that doesn't go without saying. Precisely. But I think that Kushner, as a not only a playwright, but also a, a political activist mm-hmm. and a very engaged political playwright, right. is always interested in the idea of whether or not his plays can really change the world. Mm -hmm. Can drama ever really affect any sort of meaningful change in our society? And as much as I think he believes in the ability of art to change and the hope that is necessary to keep that project going, he is very much ambivalent about it. Mm -hmm. And he, he often, I think, questions in his own work whether art is really doing any good. He lies awake at three in the morning wondering whether he's wasting his life. The rest of us can tell him he's not. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Um, So, Charlie, here's a question for you. Do you think the Cornet is still playable? Is it an effective script? You know, I think it's a really good question. I'm sure uh, with a conspicuously talented group of uh, artists, Working on, uh, and I assume you mean the original French, or you mean just a more straightforward English translation? Yeah, if you yes, I'm thinking an English translation yeah. just because that's yeah. what we would see. But yeah, I, I'm sure a group of artists can find a way to make it fantastically viable and a mm-hmm. wonderful night of the theater. Uh, 
uh, I think in Tony's freely adapting the text, he was trying to address what he thought were not was not only the spirit and the world of the play, but also I think some of the challenges of bringing that spirit and that uh, energy of the Cornet's original to a contemporary audience. Whereas some of the themes, as Drew identified, in terms of the place of theater in in the in its uh, ascendancy or descendancy in the culture, uh, that that Tony was being aware of. We've all been, unfortunately, to see classic works uh, that uh, uh, think, well, my jo- the do- job of the all and all the artists involved is to have a kind of a, for lack, forgive me, a sort of a fundamentalist original intent mm-hmm. uh, uh, point of view. And too bad if the audience doesn't pick up on it because uh, it's resonating for something that was only true back in the period with which it was written. Uh, we clearly share Tony's desire to look at uh, theatrical works of all periods, find out what was that original spark, that original necessity that, in this case, the original artist Cornet had to need to must write this play. And then how can we, with the help of the free <laughs> adaptation that Tony did, how can we bring it to most vibrant uh, theatrical life so the contemporary audience will tap into that same place of, of inspiration and not be stuck? stuck or feel displaced or distant from uh, some specific themes that would have only resonated if you were living 1636 in France. Do you think that – I think there are different spirits in which a playwright could undertake an adaptation. And one would be, uh, as you've kind of described it, how do you find the correlative that will most directly affect a current audience in, in some parallel way to how the original would have affected a contemporary audience at the time it was written. So you're trying to have, you're trying to say the same thing, but kind of translate it into a modern idiom somehow. But you could also take an old text as just a jumping off place for what you want to do. And I think you've said that you feel like this is an example of the former, that Kushner really was trying to convey what Corneille meant in ways that could be heard by a modern audience. But maybe that isn't what you were saying. So that's my first question. No, that is my interpretation of the study of Tony's text. Mm -hmm. It'll be wonderful because uh, on Tuesday, April 6th, I get to ask him that question directly. Uh As you may know, uh, he will be in a a conversation with me at Mandel Hall here at the University of Chicago at 7.30 p.m. April 6th, uh, um, in which I'm going to ask him some of exactly these questions. Uh Why did you adapt it in the way that you did? Why did you bring this uh, story from a Spanish Golden Age uh, uh, novel to the play, etc.? But it is my... Where I sit today, and based on the conversations I had with Tony, is yes, he was attempting to do what you described in your as the first example. He was really taking Cornet. It wasn't trying to make it Kushner. He was taking Cornet and trans, translating it, yes. essentially. Yeah. And, and I would just offer a, 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 another point of view about that, which would be even if one tried to be slavishly faithful to the period and the original intent mm-hmm. – there is no way to actually achieve that. Right. You by even by just trying to do that, you are doing an adaptation. Uh, uh, you are taking a point of view, so, and because we have no idea of actually how they were performed, it's this whole idea about let's play music on original instruments. Mm-hmm. How do we have any idea that 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 is being? You know, we're being totally uh, uh, true to that original intent. We have no idea. Well, and another very important point is that even if you did know, 
you couldn't have the same effect on a modern audience. If we hear Bach after hearing exactly. Bartok, Bach is different. Exactly. And exactly. so the audience is different. So whatever you do, it's going to be different. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, what preoccupations of Kushner are highlighted by the changes that he made? I would mm. imagine that by being able to put these two scripts next to each other, you see what Kushner cared about Yeah. by the changes he made. Well, uh, you know, he was commissioned to write this adaptation – you know, early in his career, in fact, before um, he he was really recognized in any way as a playwright, he was before actually... Before he wrote Angels, right? Exactly. He mm -hmm. was trained as a director. He was a resident director at the theater he was working at who then uh, asked him, I think this is correct, Drew, they asked him to do this commission. Uh, in fact, he was writing this play at the same time that he was writing Angels in America. Mm -hmm. um, and um, <laughs> And it's the first play that he ever actually made any money. Uh, uh, from uh, that is the illusion it was the, his adaptation of the illusion. Um, sorry, sorry. What was your question? <laughs> my question. Well, I think my question was what preoccupations of his oh, yeah. are evident by the changes that he made. I mean, where, what's clearly Kushner that sort of leaked out? Well, I'm not sure how I would answer that. I don't know how true you would or how Tony would, but certainly the singular point of view about the power of illusion, the power of theater, and its ability, if not to transform us and change our lives, at least to open the door to the possibility of our own self-generated, self self-determined transformation. Uh, but then again, I think that's also in the Kushner. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the in the Cornet. In the Cornet so yeah. I think he's sharing something with Cornet. Well, he was interested in the text. For, oh, no, you're saying he was commissioned. He didn't he choose this text. Well, but I also think he didn't commit to doing it unless there was something in it that, that, that interested him. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, needless to say, he's done other adaptations uh, uh, of existing texts, the Dybbuk, Mother Courage, etc. Um, so it'll be interesting to ask him that specific question. I don't know, Drew, how would you – what do you think? Well, there's a moment – in the script, in Kushner's script, where the magician Alcondra is showing the father, Predamont, these visions of his son. And at one point, he shows him a vision that is not of his son. And the father says, narrow the vision, mm -hmm. you digress. Right. And I do get the sense sometimes that that's what Kushner is doing. He occasionally locks on an idea or a character in the cornet, but then he starts to digress and take it a little bit mm -hmm. down his own path before mm -hmm. he comes back to the cornet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's evident in a couple of characters that he is, I think, more interested in than Cornet was interested mm, in. Interesting, yeah. The Which ones? The character of Matamore, especially, who mm -hmm. is a very comic character in the cornet, and in fact, he extends from a long tradition of El Capitano Commedia, or even Roman comedians. Mm -hmm. Um, but in Cornet, his dramatic function is as complete comic relief. Mm -hmm. But in the Kushner, where Madame War's story stops in the Cornet, Kushner sort of extends it and continues it. And he mm -hmm. ends up being a very important part of the second part of the play. And that character who starts off as a very comic character becomes a very complex, sad character in a way that it never was in the Cornet. There's also another character. And who, just I have to interject an absolute tour de force performance mm -hmm. by Timothy Edward Kane in that role. Just absolutely fabulous. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, go ahead. And of course, another big change that Kushner enacts on the Cornet is the addition of this character of the amanuensis, the mm -hmm. magician's servant, who is this sort of that's a, that's a Kushner uh, invention, a, a complete Kushner oh, invention, mm -hmm. uh, who serves as this. Uh, sort of stage manager or servant role mm -hmm. who is definitely, I think, carrying on his back some of Kushner's ideas about 
class mm-hmm. and uh, and sort of the politics of a capitalist theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was deeply resonant for me too because as you may be aware, uh, last season we had the privilege of producing uh, Tony's and Janine Tesori's musical Caroline or Change. In to which, enormous acclaim. In, in which money – Change the actual mm-hmm. change in the boy's pocket, a $20 bill. There's a whole song about $20, mm-hmm. $20, $20. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how money is the, is the, often the definition, one of the political point of views would be how money defines and corrupts human relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and clearly in, in this piece as well, it is a unique specific to Tony's adaptation that's not in Cornet that he has not only this servant but the servant who's in the employ under the control of – he has a – he is the slave to mm-hmm. the, the magician Alcandra uh, 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 and how much that character's role is defined by his uh, economic position. Mm-hmm. Although to me, I have to say that's an example of how – the playwright's ideas in a great playwright never seem simplistic. I'm trying mm-hmm. to say something more than that. That whole relationship struck me much more complexly than merely mm-hmm. being about economics or yeah. class. Yeah. Um, and that, that's my experience of Kushner in general is that, you know, his politics are very clear, but his plays are much more multifaceted and yeah, ambivalent yeah, yeah. and yeah, exactly. rich than exactly. kind of his very straight, clear political ideas. And I think he'd be happy to hear you say that. <laughs> I think yeah. he would. Uh, because yeah. he, he's very big into putting forth his argument in a play and then immediately undercutting it. Right. Right. And, and didactic theater is so much less satisfying for the audience. Yeah. So. Well, um, I have one last question, uh, which is, did any of the students in your class give you any ideas that ended up on the stage? Yes, actually, a lot of very specific, you know, singular moment ideas that um, are uh, would be quite tedious to describe be, unless you'd seen the production. Um, but um, I think the thing that was most useful in, in a more global sense was this wonderful uh, student named Zach in our class who wrote a lot about um, – the relationship between the father and the son, and actually another uh, mm-hmm. Lee, another student in the class, did as well, mm-hmm. and and maybe that also was deeply resonant for me personally, uh, because one of the principal reasons, besides it being a glorious text and wanting to continue the my artistic relationship with Tony Kushner, the the real personal connection for me was both as a father and a son, uh, how much I resonated with that the journey that those two characters go on in the play. Yeah. Uh, s- similarly, and this is pure conjecture on my part, uh, how much – you may recall the, a very famous scene in Angels in America where uh, the character is on a phone call with his mother on the payphone in which he uh, finally acknowledges to her that he's a gay man uh, and the, sh- the struggle that that character goes through to, to in that conversation. Uh, the fact that Tony was writing this play at the same time and was clearly about a father – a very complicated and very uh, charged controversial – not controversial uh, – dynamic uh, relationship and broken relationship between a father and a father and a son, uh, somehow it makes perfect sense to me that those two things were happening in parallel. At the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this. It's a wonderful production. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 